Hi, I'm Dorian Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D because life isn't just about survival, it's about thrival. Hi, everybody. I am Dorian Wheel and welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. This is the show where we talk about optimal functioning. We're not only talking about just survival and getting through your day and overcoming your obstacles in a mediocre way. We're talking about really living your best life and tackling all of the issues which actually impede that from happening. And I can tell you that we couldn't have a better person with us today to talk about this than Dr. John DeMartini. John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And Been looking forward to this one. <laughs> we have actually connected over the years several times. Yes. And it's always a great pleasure. And one of the things that I absolutely admire is that the variety of topics that probably lead to kind of thrival and optimal behavior that you tackle in all of your presentations and workshops and speeches. You talk about pretty much anything. You talk about financial fitness. You talk about health and fitness and thrival in the workplace. You talk about relationships and you talk about personal development. And sometimes you isolate the specific obstacles that need to be tackled across the board in all of those things. So I know that you're in South Africa most particularly to talk about fear, overcoming fear and taking action. The taking action, of course, is very important. So one thing that I wanted to start with asking you is, do you, in your presentations and in your ideas about transition, about human behavior, have kind of core beliefs that actually transcend everything and then can be focused on the particular issue that you're talking about? That's insightful because that's, I believe that's true because that's what I think gives me a lot of latitude when I'm presenting because there are core behaviors, core mechanisms, you might say, that people, if they understand principles that they understand, it gives them a lot of freedom, a lot of resilience. Uh, let me give an example. As I've said before on many radio shows and interviews and talks, that every human being lives with a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most to least important in their life. Whenever they're setting goals and intentions that are really aligned very fully and congruent with what they value most, because they have the most adaptability and resiliency there, they have the most ability to, to be free to come and go and not be attached. But when they're doing something that are low on their values, they get really polarized. They go into the amygdala, the subcortical regions of their brain, and they become highly emotive and really polarized and attached to things. And then they fear the loss of things and they fear the gain of things. And then therefore they have difficulty adapting to a changing environment and therefore they live in a stress. And a lot of phobias and fears and anxieties come when they're not living really congruently with what they value most, where they have the greatest adaptability to whatever happens and they use it to the greatest fulfillment. But that breakthrough experience is what I got to know you for in the very beginning. You've offered that. I think you said a thousand and sixty-eight times. That's it. <laughs> and so it's you know it's incredibly powerful, and there's huge demand for that. What you've just spoken about in terms of core values has to come into that, and certainly has to come into overcoming fear, because you have to understand in the way you described it, and what those values are, and how you are under much more stress 
fear and discomfort when you're not aligned with those values. So perhaps the first part that I would like to ask you is how do you find out what your core values are? People just walk around not really knowing. And if you had to ask them, they would say, I haven't really thought about that. Well, most people, if you ask them, I've been working with values for over 40 years, and people, if you ask them what their values are, they'll tell you usually the injected values of mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, conventions, traditions, or mores of the society that they're playing in. And they'll usually say, you know, peace and honesty and integrity and things that are kind of like the idealisms. In that, I'm interested in what people say. I'm interested in what their life is demonstrating. Because every decision you make, every perception, decision, and action you take is a reflection of what you value most at that moment. And whatever the hierarchy of values you hold, it dictates your destiny because it's making your decisions. So I look at what your life demonstrates. I look at how you fill your space. Because whatever you fill your space with, you keep around you things that are valuable and you try to discard things that aren't. How you spend your time. You find time, make time, spend time on things that are really valuable to you. And you don't make time for things that aren't. I look at what energizes you. When you're doing something high in your values, your energy goes up. And if not, they go down and you're drained. I look at what you spend your money on. You make money, find money, spend money on things that are valuable to you. You don't want to spend money and you think it's too expensive if it's not valuable to you. And I look at where you're most organized because things that are really valuable to you, you do bring order to. Mm. And things that aren't valuable, you don't get around to bringing order to. I look at where you're most disciplined and reliable because whatever's highest on your value, you're there for it. For me, it's teaching. But to a mother who loves beautiful children, she's there for her children every single day and she's reliable for it. Then I look at what they think about, what they visualize, and what they internally dialogue to themselves about, about how they want their life that is showing evidence of coming true. It has to have evidence. There's no evidence. It's fantasy. Mm. But if it's really coming true, that means they're taking actions and making decisions to fulfill it, and they're metricing the journey. Then I look at what they converse with others about most, because they always want to talk about what's most important to them. How's your kids? How's your golf game? How's your business? How's your finances? They'll start conversations. Then I look at what it is that inspires them and brings a tear of inspiration to them, because that's a really great indicator. And then I look at what is the three most consistent, persistent goals that they are pursuing and showing evidence of coming true. And the last one, I look at what are that they study, read about, learn about, listen to about most, that they constantly go to on YouTube or on videos or TED Talks or when they're looking in the newspaper, they go to the bookstore. What's the most common thing that they spontaneously want to absorb? If I look at all those 13 criteria and I get three answers of each and then tally them up, there'll be redundant reiterations of the same answers over and over in synonym form or exact form. And that tells you what their values are, tells you what's really important to them. And then they can start organizing their life according to what they value most. Because if you don't fill your day with the things that are most important to you, it fills up with things that aren't. And you devalue yourself every time you do things low on your values, and you empower yourself and value yourself. Your self-worth goes up every time you live congruently Mm. by what's most valuable to you. Hmm. So that requires in itself quite a lot of the development of self-awareness. You've asked in the last few minutes extremely powerful questions that people have to answer. Sometimes those answers come to them quickly because they're living it. They know what's important to them and how they spend their time. Sometimes they have to think about it, I guess, a bit more than that. But it seems to be the core, the springboard of almost everything that you talk 
about, in fact, of life, really, and of manifestation of thrival and success in various platforms. So that has to be the starting point. That's the starting Just on this, I need to ask you a question. It's a personal question. My son is in the middle of doing his accounting science exams. I can tell you that he's not enjoying it. He is not enjoying it at all. It's a slog. What he's keeping in his mind or trying to, which sometimes gets dropped, really, is that I don't really want to do this. I'm not going to be an accountant. But I think that it's in preparation for something else, that it's a good springboard for entrepreneurship or whatever. I don't know if that's his real value or if it's what he's heard. He's not enjoying the journey. Not at all. He's forcing himself to do it because of something that he thinks he might connect with but isn't really connecting with for the future. So the question that I had when you were talking about it is, is it possible, is it really possible for people to live by their values in the present such that they don't experience that stress and the fear that we're about to talk about? Because it sounds, I mean, amazing and wonderful and fun and you have a spring in your step and you look forward to the day if your life is congruent. But is that possible for most of us? <laughs> the answer is absolutely yes. There's two things that I teach in the Breakthrough Experience. Either go and do what you love through delegation or go and love what you do through linking. And through I, linking? Linking. Mm. And I've done this in educational systems. And I've done this in corporate systems. And I do it for just about anybody who wants to become more engaged and more inspired and more energized. Anytime a person goes to work, nobody goes to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to try to fulfill their highest values and what's most meaningful to them. If they can see how their job responsibilities, all the duties they have, if they can see how each one of those things is helping them fulfill what their dream is, their highest value, they're engaged, they want to go to work, they don't care about breaks, they don't need stimulants and coffee and breaks and stuff because they're engaged, they're inspired, and they're the most productive. But if they can't see how those daily actions are helping them fulfill what their highest value is, they're disengaged and they go into the amygdala and the amygdala wants to avoid mm. pain and seek pleasure and it wants to the desire center for coffee, tea, stimulants, sex, or who knows what, consumption, anything to try to get Out a dopamine it. high mm. to compensate for the unfulfillment. Mm. So if you ask a very pertinent question, how specifically is this job duty helping me fulfill what I've determined is my highest value and what's most inspiring and meaningful to me? And then don't say, I don't know, I can't find it, or you'll stay trapped. Mm. But find the link. Mm. And I've never been okay. able to find somebody that I can't make the links mm. for if I work with them. And I do this at school. I remember you once told me the story. It's coming back to me now about the girl who hated maths. Exactly. And how you showed her that that was in the service. And she was she was involved in, in riding horses. And I showed her how it, right. how everything that she was doing was mathematical. And then she excelled in math after that. Mm. I had a soccer player recently. I did the same thing to her. And children... Children, when they can see how the classes they're taking is helping them fulfill what's meaningful to them, their dreams. I had a young boy that wants to be a minister, and I showed the classes that he was going to be taking along the journey, and he didn't think he wanted to do it. He just wanted to read only the Bible, which is great. Mm -hmm. But what happened is I, I linked those classes until now he wants to buy those books. So it's, it's not what happens to you. It's your perception of it. Mm -hmm. We have control over perceptions, decisions, and actions. That's it. Nothing else. Mm -hmm. So if we can take and master the art of taking whatever happens to us and asking, how is it helping me fulfill what's highest on my value? I can take anything that we think is in the way and turn it on the way. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer victim of history, now master of destiny. 
So it's not the job. It's the perception of the job. Mm -hmm. And if we find out clearly what he wants to do, and then how is this job and these duties helping you get there Mm -hmm. and make those links, his brain sees it on the way, not in the way, and his energy goes right up. And once he goes up, the executive sort of comes online. And when you do, you're able to absorb information. You're able to creatively think. A whole lot of things start happening, and you're in the flow again. Mm -hmm. And you see it as a stepping stone. I always say, do what you love through delegation or love what you do through linking. And when you're doing the linking, you're only linking it Mm -hmm. long enough until you can find somebody to delegate it to. And then you liberate yourself by doing the highest Mm -hmm. priority things that give you the greatest self-worth, the greatest specialty. Because in the areas of your highest values, you're looking for challenges that that inspire you. Mm -hmm. You're not trying to run from them. You tackle mm-hmm. challenges. And this is where genius is born and great creativity and innovation and original ideas, great music. So I want to talk about that vis-a-vis a little bit of your story, if you don't mind, because I think that that, I mean, you were not born or your early childhood didn't set you up for what you're saying now. In fact, if I recall the story, I think that you were set up in a way for just the opposite. You were given different messages about yourself. You were given messages about how your future would look. And you were given very strong messages about your ability or lack of ability to learn. So, I mean, to really establish what your values would be that would set you on this incredible path of speaking all over the world and loving what you do and feeling energized and this being in tune with your values, never mind another speech, and this is hard, and you know, this is a big audience, and I'm tired. That doesn't seem to come into it. And if you could see Dr. Demartini is shaking his head, it doesn't come into it. So there's a part that I really love, and that's a part that makes it sound easy. If you just do this, it's almost like, for goodness sake, you know, can't you see that if you just find your values, just find your values <laughs> and relate to them and do this? You know, you'll be on that kind of thrival path. The other part is it's practice and it's not so easy every day. And you have to find those links because sometimes the links are way into the future and they're to do with things that you haven't yet experienced. It's a perception. Maybe you've done research about this and this and this being really necessary in preparation, but it's not that kind of strong internal perception. So how did you develop these? It's not even a belief, it's a knowing. I mean, when you talk about it, There is absolutely no doubt at all about doing it. And I also think because you walk the talk, you do it all the time. How did that happen for you? (laughs) Well, it was a a gradual thing. Something happened to me at 28 that was really meaningful. Two things back to back. But one is I happened to walk into a Walden's bookstore that used to exist at that time. And I came across a book called The Time Trap by Alec McKenzie. And I started to devour this book, and I felt it was talking to me, because I realized at that time I had just opened up my practice, and I was trying to do a little of everything. You were a chiropractor. Yes, I used to align spines and minds of the divine, make people feel fine, I used to tell people. And he was a poet. Yes, and now I help people (laughs) set their goals to drive their roles. I changed changed the poetry. (laughs) But the point is that I, I started reading this book, and I realized that I was majoring in minors and minoring in majors in my business. I was doing a lot of stuff because I thought, oh, I can do it. By the time I teach somebody doing, I could have done it. They may not do it the way I want. I was in my way. And I sat down and I made a list of every single thing that I did in a day, everything. And the next to it, the next column, I wrote down, how much does it produce per hour? 
And then I wrote down, how much meaning does that have to me? Then I wrote, how much time do I actually spend on it? And then how much would it cost me to delegate that if I had somebody to do it with every cost of delegation? And then I reprioritize each of those columns. What is the one that produces the most? What is the one that has most meaning? And which one has the biggest spread? That if I did this, it could earn this amount, but it would, if I delegate it, it could only cost me this amount. And then I reprioritize the whole thing in the sixth column. And then I decided to do, I'm going to, the ones that are most productive, most meaningful, and has the biggest income, if I put my target there and focus on the majors, I have the income to delegate more and more. And I may be able to free myself up to not have to do the things that weigh me down and lower my value. Because if you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, your day fills up with low priority distractions that don't. Mm -hmm. Entropy takes over. Mm -hmm. So I started to prioritize and I hired people. And sometimes I go two or three people until I find that one person. Mm -hmm. But once I got that person, that layer was gone. The next layer was gone. Mm -hmm. And within 15 months, my little practice of 970 square foot office with one assistant was now five doctors, 12 staff members in a 5,000 square foot office in 15 months. And once I liberated myself and I did that, then I got to do what I love best, which is going out and presenting the message, targeting and prioritizing the patients that I love working with the most. I was making more income. I was opportunities to helping the economy. I was extracting surplus labor values so there was more profits. I was engaging the society with more because I started a radio and television series. I started doing more and more with that the time that I bought and I did what I loved. And I realized that if I don't fill my day with the absolute highest priority things, my day fills up with things that depreciate me. Mm-hmm. And then I exemplify that for everybody below in the, in the game. Mm-hmm. And that affects my children, affects my family, affects everybody. Because mm-hmm. you're not inspired when you come home if you're doing stuff that's low on your values. Absolutely. You're resilient and adaptable and love other people when you love yourself mm-hmm. that way. Sure. And people pick that up. And they it's can pick contagious. It up. It's very contagious. So how does, I mean, because fear does come into lots of our lives every now and then in fact fairly often for some people all the time sometimes it's consuming and really debilitating other times people can link it to some of the tasks that they're doing and it's not really that pervasive in terms of characteristic of their life but it does serve as obstacle from time to time yes so can you give us a little bit of a preview of how that emotion kind of knocks on your door and encroaches on you like a monster and says, you know, you have to listen to me. I've got a voice and I can kind of take you over and I'm a tricky bastard. Well, I like to take the monster and make him a monster, like the old Adams family or the monsters. <laughs> yeah. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, this is going to probably shock some people when I say this, mm-hmm. but I want you to imagine a magnet in your hand with a positive negative pull. And I want you to imagine one side being the positive side, and we're going to call that philia, P-H-I-L-I-A. And the other side of the pull, we're going to call phobia, P-H-O-B-I-A. Philia and phobia are like the positive and negative poles of a magnet. It's another name for elation and depression, or seek and avoid, or positive and negative, or possibly you know happy and sad. But they're two poles, and they always come together like two poles of a magnet. And when you're addicted to one, you're going to be frightened of the other. So let's give an example. Let's say you meet this, you're a young guy who's single, and you meet this beautiful girl. You're enamored with her. She's just beautiful. And you infatuate with her. And you're conscious of all the upsides, and you're unconscious of the downsides. And you're blind and ignorant of all the downsides that are about to come, but you haven't seen yet. And you're just infatuated. And because of the blindness of the downsides, and because of the infatuation, 
you fantasize about her with serotonin, you're dopamine driven and you're addicted to her, your encephalons are up because you're now having pleasures fantasizing, but now you have the fear of losing her, the fear of somebody taking her away, mm. and you can have jealousy. So phobia comes with philia. Mm. The moment you get philic, now, as you start to date her, weeks go by, you start to see some of the downsides. And as it does, the fantasy goes down. And eventually, if the downsides equal the upsides, and you're completely neutral, and you finally realize how to love somebody, because they have both sides, then all of a sudden, you sometimes can go to the other extreme, you start to resent the person. You can go through oscillations. While you're resenting them, you don't have a fear of them being taken. <laughs> you don't have fear of losing them. You have the fear of being around them. And now because of the phobia you have about them, now you set up a fantasy about how it will be to be away from them. And now the phobia and philia flips on the other side and now you're frightened about being them while you're resenting them. And now you're fantasizing about getting away from them because they can't separate those two poles. So as long as we're addicted to one side, the other side's going to smack us. And that's what distress is. Distress is pursuing a one side of a magnet and then not being prepared for the other side. Where you stress is the embracing of both sides. So if I walk up to somebody and I said, you're always kind, you're never cruel, you're always nice, you're never mean, you're always positive, you're never negative, you're always giving, you're never taking, you're always considerate, never inconsiderate, you're always peaceful, you're never wrathful, do you believe me? They go, uh, not really. Mm -hmm. Their own internal guidance would say, not quite. Yeah. And if I said, you're always mean, you're never nice, you're always cruel, you're never kind, you're always taking, never giving, always inconsiderate, never considered, always wrathful, never peaceful, always negative, never positive, do you believe me? They go, no. I said, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're positive, sometimes you're negative, sometimes you're peaceful, sometimes you're wrathful. Do you believe me? They go, yeah. The truth is they have both. Mm -hmm. And the term objectivity means to have balance. It means neutral. And subjectivity means bias, it means partial awareness. And so whenever we're subjectively biased and we have this fantasy of a positive without a negative, we're setting ourselves up for the distress. But the moment we have a true objective and we can see people for the balance and have a realistic expectation on life, we don't have a fantasy and we don't have to have a phobia. Mm. The phobia is not our enemy. The phobia is a feedback mechanism to guide us to let us know that we're pursuing a fantasy and we haven't brought objectivity. And when we're in our executive center in the forebrain, the purpose of the executive center is strategic planning. And the purpose of strategic <laughs> planning is to transform fantasies into objectives. Because then we've thought out all the downsides, mitigated the risks, and are prepared for them, and we've cleared the fantasy, and we've cleared the fear. Now, can I ask you about this? Because in terms of translating it into action, I'd like to think of sort of some common examples where people actually stop their action because of fear, or should we say because of perception, because of perceived fear. To translate it, that's why in your talk you spoke about understanding your fears – but also overcoming them and taking action. What would you say about that? And many times where people will say, no, I'm not doing it because I'm too too scared. Well, fear is an assumption that you're about to experience your senses or imagination in the future, more drawbacks than benefits, more disadvantages than advantages, more losses than gains, more negative than positives, which are perceptions that are not real. They're just false evidences. And as long as we have those perceptions, we're going to have our reactions based on those perceptions. How do you change those perceptions if, if the person doesn't set themselves up for experiences that would precipitate the change? Well, anything in their life, let me define anxiety for a second. Let's say, I'll use an analogy here. Let's say you, you're a young boy and your mom and dad are fighting and the father is really aggressive to the mother 
and you don't want to look, you don't want to hear, you don't want to feel it. And so you crawl as a one-year-old into your little bedroom and hide under the bed. And you cover up your head, you cover up your eyes, you close your eyes, you cover your ears, and you just hide. Yeah. And curl up in a fetal position. Yeah. And they're fighting. And then you fall asleep as a way of escaping. The next morning, dad's gone off to work. Mom takes you to the grocery store. And you get in the basket. She puts you in the basket. And you're going down an aisle. And the night before, your dad was wearing blue jeans and a white shirt, had a brown mustache and brown hair. Yeah. Now you go down an aisle. And all of a sudden... Mom goes by, and there's a man coming with blue jeans, white shirt, brown hair, brown mustache. And so the baby gets that, gets a cue because of associations from a memory, and now will jump in front of the mother and protect the mother and look over its shoulder at the thing to protect mommy from it, or get behind the mother as a flight or flight response. In the process of doing it, he now associates that. And then when you pass the boy, the guy back, he calms down. If this a little kid acts out and then it calms down yeah. once the man's gone. Yeah. They go down another aisle now that sees a, a guy with blue jeans, yellow shirt, brown hair, and brown eyes. Now it associates partial and a slight anxiousness and partial reaction. Then you go down another aisle, now we see a blue shirt, I mean a white shirt, blue jeans, yellow hair, yellow mustache. And every time we have either one or more of those associations, we start building up compounding secondary associations. And now any of those things can trigger us to have an anxiety response from an initial fear. Now, until we go back to that fear and neutralize that fear, anxiety is going to be perpetuating and it's just going to keep compounding. And so people go, I don't even know why I'm anxious. I'm just having this something about this room. But it's something in there that's cueing it through their senses. They're stored in their subconscious mind. They're activating it. But if you go back to that moment where the actual fear was and go find out what's the benefit to the mother, how does it help the child? What's the downside if it didn't occur? Did mom get more empowered? Did she decide to go to, to get a job? Did she end up deciding to get more independent? Did he get more humbled? You know, you start going in and balance out the original perception and it's neutral. Then entire anxiety thing and cascades disappear. Sure. I've seen that over and over in my breakthrough So experience. do you, I was going to say, that's what you do in your breakthrough class. We, we take fears of all but, different sorts and we dissolve them weekly. Hmm. And also, it sounds like what you do is in terms of that balance, you look at current experiences versus past perception and the reality and the influence of the person's current life, which maybe they've minimized, perhaps looked through the small side of the binoculars and maximized all of those past experiences, sometimes even unconsciously, which influence them every day on their day Well, people want to blame things on the outside and become their victims. And as long as you blame and you look from an external source, and, and you're going to look for an external source to solve it. But I always say it's wiser to look within. Because it's not what people do, it's what your perception of what mm -hmm. they do. If I took your hand here and put it on the table mm -hmm. and I hit it with a sledgehammer, you'd probably think I'm crazy. Why would I do that? Now, ouch, that's painful. But if, I, if you're a single woman and you're 35 years old or some 40 years old and you're single and you have a goal to have a husband, and I said, I'm going to give you Hugh Jackman a billion dollars cash, a month vacation of your own choosing and you're going to be able to have a surgeon repair your thumb within 10 days. It'll be perfectly normal and look better than it's ever done. But I'm going to give you a billion cash. Can I slam your thumb? Yeah. You go, yeah, slam Where's it. Where's the sledgehammer? Where's the sledgehammer? I like that. Okay. So your association with that experience is what determines it. Yeah. Anaxagoras wrote about that in 2,600 years ago. He said that pain and pleasure are perceptions. 
They're based on that. That's why John Bonica said that pain is a private sensation of hurt based on associations and perceptions. So we can take any event that we think is terrible, and a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we can find some terrifics in it if we take the time to look. But why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process and we can find it right now by asking the right questions? Because mm-hmm. the quality of our life is based on the quality questions we ask. And if we ask questions that bring our mind back into balance, once our mind is balanced, we don't have phobias and phileas. Mm-hmm. We're present. And that's where our power is. So um, just to finish with this, one of the difficulties I think that is inhibiting the moving forward, as you call it, taking action with this, is that I don't know what I don't know. I'm kind of living to an extent unhappily ever after, but unhappily with certainty. Kind of getting out of this means a leap of faith into the unknown. That makes me as scared as hell. I don't want to be stuck here, but I'm scared about what's out there and taking the risk as well. Well, what's interesting is when people come to me in the Breakthrough Experience pretty well weekly and say, I have a fear, and I go, fear of what? They go, I don't know. And I said, well, it's impossible to have fear of the unknown. I confront the idea of fear of the unknown. I've never seen it to be true. You can't have fear of the unknown. You have fear of the content that's accurately in your mind at that moment. Mm. So if we access what's in the mind, we can actually find out what the fear is. And the fear is usually a result of some previous experience that you associate a pain without a pleasure to or a pleasure without a pain to that you fear the loss of or the fear the gain of. So once we identify what that fear is, it's about asking the right question. And once we ask the question that balances out, because there is no such thing as a bad or a good event out there. It's just an event until you choose to make it one or the other. And if you Mm -hmm. choose to make it one or the other, you've created it, not because of Mm -hmm. what's been happening to you, but what you chose. And we give it so much credit because it just controls our actions and prevents us from moving forward. We give power away instead of honoring our power. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you see as, I mean, if we make it that people say, no, I do know what I'm scared of. The most common things that people present as their dominant fears that interfere with their lives. The seven basic fears, the fear of not knowing enough, not being educated enough, not having a degree, not uh, being able to respond and articulate intelligently in different situations and feeling ignorant. That's one fear. The fear of failure and not achieving something that is important to you, that you feel that uh, somehow you're going to fail at. Right. The fear of not making money or losing money, because money is a universal medium now for a lot of exchanges, and that means you're not able to have transactions. The fear of loss of loved ones or the respect of loved ones that's very important to you, that's close, intimate families. The fear of rejection by anybody in society that you think is more important than you, because the little boy down the street comes up to you and cusses at you. You go, okay, kid, whoopie do. Mm. But if somebody really important to you does that, it really hurts because mm-hmm. you value them and their opinion more than your own. And as long as you put people on pedestals, you're going to minimize yourself and you're going to think their values are more important to you and you're going to conform into the collective herd instead of actually being an sure. independent. And then the fear of ill health, death, or disease or the loss of beauty because people want to be attractive and they want to be fit and they want to be well. And then the fear of breaking the morals and ethics of some spiritual authority that you've given power to. Sometimes it's thousands of years old, but it's never been thought through. And as long as we have those basic fears or multitude of those, because one can compound the other, we're going to run our life in mediocrity and we're going to shrink instead of shine. Mm. And each of those fears are simply imbalanced perspectives. Every one of those fears I get every weekend in the program and I show people how to ask a new set of questions and show them exactly what to do to dissolve the fear. 
And if you take whatever you think is going to happen that you think is so terrible that's about to happen and look for its opposite, the fantasy, if you find the drawbacks to the fantasy and the benefit of what happens and then take both of them and link them to what your highest value is, you immediately spontaneously act wisely. You don't have a fear because we spontaneously act in our highest values. And whatever you think is in the way and not helping you get that makes you hesitate. And the reason you're hesitating because you're pursuing things unwisely. And your body's doing its job to let you know you're not living by your highest value, you're not being congruent, and you got an imbalanced perspective. And it's giving you feedback to let you know you're not empowered that way. Doesn't this have to be reinforced sort of over? And, I mean, you come to your program and you hear it. And what I want to ask now is it's it's fascinating. You make it sound, and I think it is because you've had so much experience and so have thousands of other people with this, so possible to have that vision of living your life without these incumbent fears or obstacles that come in by learning how to ask the right kind of questions and by challenging your perceptions and by being aligned. It surely takes, you hear it, I'm listening to it again and I have heard it from you. How do you really sustain that? And the people who've been on the breakthrough programs, sometimes I know that they come more than once to sort of reinforce the learning. Do you keep in touch with the people about how they sustain the lessons and internalize them and live them? Well, I'm blessed to have comments and letters coming in daily from people that attend the programs. So I get, I don't even have to really go out to try to find out what it is. They're usually giving me feedback on a mm-hmm. weekly basis. So I'm blessed with that. I can't, I don't believe it's everybody by any means, mm-hmm. but I get a vast amount of people that go through the programs and they send thank you letters or they say, this is what's happening. This morning I had a lady that said, I just increased my income and I just end up broke, breaking through this goal of speaking in front of a group of people. All I did is follow what you said. I knew who I was speaking mm-hmm. to. I made a list of them. I looked them up on the internet. I identified what I thought they were more important than me, found out where I had that in there, put a reflective awareness on it, got the rewards that I wanted. And I just follow the process. So I get feedback from people. And some people want to stay in there. They have an agenda because if all of a sudden, like, can I share a story? Can please, I do it? Yeah. Yes, please. Okay, I have this lady that was in Calgary, Canada. She had a son that died and hung himself doing a sexual act. 16. Hmm. So she's dealing with this grief process. And I've developed this grief process to help her. But what's happened is that she was married to a very wealthy family. And she got pregnant. And the parents of the wealthy family, they actually offered to pay her off and have an abortion or go have the child with something else. And they thought that the, they, she had trapped the son. So she was grieving and grieving and grieving. And I have a developed a grief process that's being studied and it's been used since 1984. And I've been doing it over and over again. And as we we're going through it, I noticed that she was resisting it. And I, so I said, okay, we got a motive here. We figured out what the motive was. She was afraid that if all of a sudden she actually dissolved her grief that she would end up having no reason for them to to have to be married anymore. Oh, so the parents were pre- pre- saying, well, now, she, like, see, the child is now gone. Now you can finally break away from her without having this idea that you have a child. And it was all these emotions that she was doing, and she was afraid of losing the prestige of being part of this wealthy family. And so she was going to stay with the grief as long as she could in order to keep that thing going sure. for the fear that she would lose her identity and they'd pay her off and she'd be a nobody because yeah. she was an average person compared to this wealthy family. Sure. So sometimes there's unconscious motives that I have to go in and navigate through and, and uncover in order to do it. But all of those are still fears. And once we identify them, we know what to do. But you've just mm. got to ask the right questions. And that's the skill. of You've been doing it for many years. You know, the skill of asking the right mm. questions is a secret. Mm. 
You talk about the taking action and the way that you take action is through asking these the questions and then there comes a part where you have some of this understanding of what motivates the fear and what you've been doing and then you question the fear and then you have to take the action. So there's still a step, am I right, that there's the understanding and there's the action. The understanding helps in the dissolving of the fear and the well, fact that I don't need to own it. But then you've got to start acting differently as if you don't. Well, the moment you change your perception, you change your decisions, you change your, your actions. Action. Yep. So let me give an example. So if it's I, a transition. It's not, okay, from today I'm doing things differently. No, you can't intellectualize no. it. No, if, I, if, if you're in fatuous with somebody, you have, you're conscious of the upsides, you're unconscious of the downsides. You have a subjective bias. You have what is called a confirmation bias for the positives and a disconfirmation bias on the negatives. You built up a fantasy. You believe their delusion and you're going after it. The person's not who you think. You're actually not in love with the person you think. You're having a fantasy about that person and they're going to punish them when they don't match it. That's usually the case. Mm. Okay. Well, that's because you have a lopsided perception. Mm. So on the first date, I was in the, the Ritz Hotel in Paris and Boris Becker and his girlfriend and the prince and princess of Japan on their honeymoon were there. Mm. And my wife and I. There's just six of us in this restaurant. And the Boris Becker was infatuated with this lovely African girl. You could just see that it was a passionate relationship. Mm. And passion, by the way, comes from pati pasio, which means to suffer. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and then, but over here, there was an intellectual thing. They had a 500-page document. The prince and princess of Japan were asking each other questions. If you're in this situation, how would you respond what's important to you. And they're getting to know each other with a little bit more rationality. They're still together and now they're the emperors. The other ones broke up within three weeks. So what, sometimes people allow their amygdala to run their life. They set up fantasies. It doesn't live up to the fantasy. Mm -hmm. Then they present and they go back and forth with emotional swings, living in the desire center, mm -hmm. instead of having some objectivity and reason and intuition guiding them back. But the hard part about that, I mean, you kind of fall in lust, right? You grow in love. This is what you say. Exactly. You grow in love, but you fall in lust. Exactly. And the thing is, I mean, then you make decisions because your brain is full of chemicals. In fact, you on you high and you with a stranger. Yes. Uh, in, because in you don't know them. I mean, you you have fantasies about them. You don't know them at all. No. And the trouble with fantasies, as I think you're saying, is that they almost they, they always positive. They almost always positive. You never fantasize about the downside. <laughs> and so often, there's only one way to go from there. <laughs> Down. Which is down, you know, not always. And until you kind of the grow in love part, you see the other side and it's fine because they might not be what your priority needs are. You can live with a person who likes opera instead of whatever it is. If they've got flat feet, if they they're like whatever Hendrix, it is, they like opera. They're not, yes. And, you know, that isn't like what your priorities are. So you can kind of balance it and say that these are my priorities in terms of my values. And so this person's a keeper. Well, I'm going to keep them. The thing is, is yeah. that, that people have a fantasy that when they get married, they're going to be happy. And I always joke with them about it. I said, the purpose of marriage is not about happiness. It's about finding somebody you can delegate low-priority stuff to <laughs> to get things done and to teach you how to become authentic and love both sides and even the parts you've been mm. disowning. So it forces you to own both sides. And maximum growth and development occurs at the board of support and challenge. And you can guarantee if you have the right mate, they're going to support and challenge you. Yeah. You get cocky, they're going to challenge you. Yeah. You get humble, they're going to support yeah. you. They're trying to get you authentic. So, in fact, I'm a better person when I'm with you. 
well, I'm we, we growing to be a better person. Uh, well, I wouldn't yeah, say more better, just more fulfilled. More fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah, not better or worse. Better is a moral language. That's a judgment. Yeah, but yeah. just more fulfilled. But also what I don't like is I'm a half a person. That's a real reductionistic stuff. Because you want two whole people who do. enhance each other. Yeah, what happens is... Whatever you see in them, you have in you, but you're too humble to admit what you see in them when you're infatuated. And then when you resent somebody, you're too proud to admit what you see in them is inside you. But nothing's missing in you. I tell people in, in a theological way that at the essence of the soul, looking down transcendently, nothing's missing in you. There's nothing to judge. But the moment you're down into the imminent mind and you're basically judging things and thinking you have too much or too little and then you're judging them, you're too proud or too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you. And everything that you're too proud or too humble to admit you have is a disowned part, a void that wants to be fulfilled. So nothing's missing in either of them, but they're coming to the realization and that's what the love process is learning to teach them that nothing was missing in either of them. So, in fact, um, I think what we've been saying is that you can apply this to pretty much everything. It's like or to having a person in your life. If you have that kind of knowledge and belief or starting from the spiritual point of view, which is really interesting, so you haven't been talking about that much, that you have it actually and that there have been these kind of beliefs, perceptions, ideas, messages from the tribe that have been internalized into your DNA and that you are functioning with all of these introjects of good, bad, right, wrong, should, shouldn't, must, mustn't. But actually you have it all in you. And your whole process, it sounds like, whether it's to do with overcoming fear and taking action, is clearing all of that, getting rid of it, to find the essence Am I getting it? You got Am it. I good, I'm good it. people. You're nailing it. <laughs> yeah, to kind of find that 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 is there that has been blocked by all of these things, and so now we apply it to what we perceive as fear that is immobilizing, that makes you feel small and meager and not be able to step into the. Fire. Our, our fears are letting us know that we have yet to see the balance of love in that situation. If once we look for the other side and balance it out, we realize that the fear was not our enemy actually our friend. It revealed to us the fantasies we were addicted to and the phobias we were subjected from and is teaching you how to see both sides of both so you can actually be present. I always say love's the synthesis and synchronicity of complementary opposites. And whenever you try to separate the inseparables and divide the indivisibles, you weigh yourself down. But when you integrate them and see them synchronously, you lighten yourself up and you liberate yourself from the, the infatuation resentments that occupy space and time and mind and run your life. You're freed to be able to be graced by life. Life is truly magnificent, but the thing is that the magnificence of our life is more powerful and more profound than the fantasies we'll ever impose on it. Sure, we just got to find that. And it starts, I think that what you're saying is that to free yourself and it's maybe just to kind of sum this up in terms of where we've gone, which is quite a big journey. There has to be that self-love, right? That self-love and respect before you're able to offer it and deal with some of these obstacles, that belief that you've got it. Well, we only, we only resent somebody who reminds us of things we're too proud to admit we have that we feel ashamed of. That's why we're resenting them. It's not because of what they're doing. It's because it's reminding us of the stuff that we've done that we're feeling ashamed of. I've proven that in the breaks experience thousands of times. And when people then go and ask, okay, what specific trait do I despise about this person? Okay, X, where and when do I display and demonstrate that? And I own that till it's quantitatively equal. Sure. And then what's the benefit to me of that behavior? 
You never thought of that. And then I, once I balance it out, I realize it's nothing about them. It's about me. And mm. they're brought into my life to help me see the parts I haven't loved yet. And I've been lying to myself about that's magnificent that I haven't seen. Mm. And when you finally see that, you love them and you love you and you appreciate life again. Mm. It's certainly a huge, much broader, all-encompassing way of viewing your relationships and not making decisions too soon or thinking that when you've fallen out of lust, you've fallen out of love. That sounds like it's really the beginning That's of the a beginning new road. of the growth. No, the beginning of the growth, not the end. Exactly. Yeah. It's more, you know, stretching and challenging yourself and really believing that there are ways forward and you give the ways forward. And we thank you for that. Um, no, thank you. Much. I love the questions. And you understand it because of all your years of experience. You understand the principles. That's why you've been blessed to serve so many people. Well, thank you very much. I'm still learning. I've got a lot of practice to do. And I need to go and apply them over and over again. So thank you very much for thank that. Thank you. I'm Dorianne Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a jackpot podcast.